but I want you to do something for me. Um, and I'll, I'll share with you in a little bit what that is. But I was reminded in the place where I'm staying, there's a scripture on the wall that says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Interestingly, that was in my notes, and it's one of the first things that I wanted to address this morning. And one of the reasons that is so important, as I process the testimony, and there's three to four hours worth of a testimony that is very consolidated, so I'm going to try to, to squeeze that into an hour. But coming here, there was a lot of emotions that took place in me that was very different from the times I went out to preach or that I've uh, done different activities or missions or whatever it may be. Um, because uh, almost 24 years ago, through the backdrop of this setting and this church on back from that with people that I was involved with, my life was incredibly changed. So as my memory went back over the 24 years of, of what God has taken myself, my wife, and our family deeply stirred. And when I say deeply, um, some really deep emotions took place. And for some reason, the Lord had me back up into a much younger time in my life that here in a little bit I'll start off with. And we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And today and over the next couple days, I want to deposit something into your account. So if you would, just do some physical therapy with your hand out like this. How many of you like a deposit when you take it to the bank? And when you take a deposit to the bank, um, most of you know you can make a withdrawal. How many of you have a bank account? That's most of you have a bank account. Those of you who don't just operate in cash, right? But bank account is a really cool thing to access. Um, it's more cool to deposit than withdraw, right? Now, you don't, it's, it's more fun to withdraw, but if there's not a deposit there, it's hard to withdraw. But I want to deposit some things into your life. And one of the things I want to kick this off with is talking about how fearfully and wonderfully you are made. And so secondly, what I want you to do for me is to consider the truth of God's word in this verse that's down in a low place. It's a nice room, so it's not that it's less than in the room I'm staying, but it's in a low place. And sometimes it's in the low place where God meets us. And on that wall, it says, out of the book of Psalm, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that word... Fearfully, there's the word reverence in there. And so I want you to consider with me the value each one of us has and what was in the heart when you were conceived. I'll never forget we're in missions in Africa and we were... We were working with FGM girls, um, deeply abused girls. And in one of the healing sessions that we had, we had them line up. And a team of us just held them, cried with them, 
and prayed for them. And our nails would come as we ministered to them, and they would just fall over because of the expression of God's love in their life. But I'll never forget one of our team members. We couldn't get through with one of the young ladies. And she just kept going back farther and farther in this girl's life until she went all the way to conception. And it broke. And she was ministered to and received healing and completely relaxed. You say, why do you say that? Because whether I and my story went back to conception, I'm not sure. But I went much younger than I normally have in the story that I want to share with you. In a world of almost 8 billion people, in the last 60 years, we have almost tripled the amount of people that are in the world. And whether we think of the concept of how many people are in the world or not, there's still lost or forgotten in the muddle. In the activity of those around us, family members, church, community, work, we feel forgotten. Not only lost, But I had to develop the word that I was feeling because my family just recently was in. And the question surfaced, what did you feel from the ages four to eight? And so in this story and prepping for this testimony, there's a, uh, a season where I experienced deep trauma in my life that I'll share with you at the age of 17. But as I backed up in my story, I understood there was some things I had faced trauma in and didn't really realize it and and just continue to receive healing for those things. So I had to recognize that from ages four to eight, I felt forgotten. I was number six of seven children, and I had a double, if not triple, dose of the middle child syndrome. And if you're the oldest or the youngest, you just leave us middle child syndrome alone just for a moment as we speak and as we minister, okay? Is that okay? I know if you're the oldest here, you're responsible. You go get it done. um, And it's just so many positive things about you. How many of you are the oldest or second oldest in the family? So we have a lot of those. I have two in my family. My wife happens to be one. And then I have an oldest child also. So I processed and pondered um, those elements in family. And if you're here and you're the youngest, you're you're saying, what responsibilities are you talking about? You're saying, life's good. It's fun. I mean, you're the favorite child, right? Hey, you decided anyhow? You might as do we have any youngest here? Yes, we have some youngest. If you're going to get tagged with that anyhow, you might as well be spoiled, right? I remember um, we grew up quite poor, but my father wasn't able to eat cornflakes, okay? And so he ate Wheaties. I, I don't know. He's not here to ask what that was all about, but I always wanted Wheaties, and 
But we had to eat cornflakes because cornflakes back in those days cost less than Wheaties. And so we would eat our cornflakes for breakfast at times when we had cold cereal. And he'd eat his Wheaties. But he'd reach over to the youngest, my brother, and put some Wheaties in his plate. I never said a word until I get to preach about it. But I allowed. My father didn't mean anything by it. I mean, just two flakes would have changed my life, folks. But it wasn't the Wheaties. Okay, I'm ministering to the middle child, right? It wasn't the Wheaties. It was the attention my younger brother got that I didn't get. And so I took upon some of those hurts. On eight, I remember waking up from naps and just crying. I, I was forgotten. I was passed over. And, and you say, was that really true? Oh, yeah, it was true. I could tell you some more stories. And you say, and you got a microphone in your hand? Yeah, it's very unlikely because I was the most insecure person that I had ever met. Times two. So if you're here today and you kind of relate to some of that early stage of what I'm talking about, you have no idea what God has in store for you as you continue to heal. And, I, and I'm not saying every middle child has this traumatizing experience, um, but it didn't go so well for me. And I was late teens till I could even speak with more than one or two people in a conversation. Uh, I was that shy. I just didn't do that. And I was extremely nervous in a crowd, very introverted and insecure. And I just felt lost and forgotten in that. So out of that, from the ages 8 to 13, I had some, some bad behavior. And God knows I didn't go looking for trouble. But trouble found me. And I was just bad. Now, maybe not the bad that some of you might think, but it was bad. It was so bad I constantly got whoopings. And my identity became getting a whooping. I didn't understand all this at those ages, but I got whooped in school and I got whooped at home. And I, ever, I remember being in an 11-passenger van going to visit another family. And my father publicly, right in the family, said, well, Matthew, I guess I should spank you before we get there because you're going to be bad. I don't hold anything against my father that I know of, but... You know, just a little bit of attention from him would have went a long ways. Yeah. And so I don't know what you're feeling here today, but I, I just want to again say you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And whether you were wanted or you weren't wanted in your family and whatever feelings or ever struggled with, God sure had something in mind for you. And you're wonderful. All the way back to conception. Where it started 46 years ago for me. And God had something in mind for you. At the age of 13, I encountered Jesus in a very special way. The prayer of my father 
day after day was those that come to the age of accountability and the family would give their hearts to you. That was the gospel also was shared in the gospel. I didn't get saved at an altar at church. I got saved in a basement room where I was when I first encountered the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life. I couldn't go to sleep that night, and that was unusual. And I got to thinking about some things, and it's just a very vivid picture of hell. Hell's not something you hear a whole lot about nowadays, but as a 13-year-old boy, that's what the Holy Spirit brought to my mind, that if I don't respond to the goodness of God, to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that I would split hell wide open if I were to die that night. That's the impression that came upon me. It got so heavy in that room, it was hard for me to breathe. I never experienced anything before that or after. The deep conviction of the Holy Spirit, out of those prayers, my father prayed that when this boy gets to the age where he's responsible for his life with you, Lord. And I trusted Christ at the age of 13. I had went and knocked on my mom and daddy's uh, bedroom door, and, and I told them what I wanted, and they quickly came out. Take you to that house in Garrett County, Maryland, where I knelt down at the couch. I could pick the wall where I knelt down and accepted Christ into my life. And I got up out of that, and my siblings were upstairs. They hadn't been asleep yet. They were, again, the older ones that had more privileges. Amen? And so they're up partying and laughing and talking and debriefing from the day. And so I don't know if they had crackers and soda up there or not. I think at the time we were too poor uh, to have any kind of extras in the house. And so I went up there to tell them. And this is something that's deep in my memory, folks. I didn't realize there were stairs there. I I literally just up. I was just up the stairs and, and just escalated without stepping. That's what it seemed like. And I went up there with great joy in my heart. And I said, I gave my life to the Lord. And they're excited. They're hugging me. And then for the next six years, I faced things much worse than before I was saved. And toward the end of those six years, I had, I had a doubt that was the size a hammer on my head. And the enemy started out with just a little mama's 12-ounce house hammer. By the time he was done with me, when I re-encountered God at the age of 19, it felt like I had a sledgehammer to my head with the doubt, am I really born again? So the period from 13 to 19 was some of the most difficult time in my life. And so we're going to drop into in the early 90s, At the age of 17, earlier than that, my father had been involved in taking hospital equipment out of Ohio, a connection that he had there to Honduras. He would take truckloads of hospital equipment that was donated by hospitals in Ohio and would drive them down to Honduras. So he had done that a few times. My mother had went with him a time or two. And his dream was to take our entire family to Panama 
to the Panama canals. So the idea was we would load these buses and take these buses and hospital equipment. We had an entire bus loaded with supplies uh, for Honduras at Santa Rosa, Honduras, uh, for the hospital equipment packed very tightly, and in the front we had like a couch and a seating area, completely loaded uh, to go to Costa Rica. So then we were going to go on down past Costa Rica uh, to Panama and see the Panama canals, sell the buses, and fly home. This is a dream he had in his life for quite some time. So in December of 1994, we pack these buses, we go to Ohio, we get the equipment, and we join some other buses and people that were traveling down to Costa Rica to live there. And so we had a caravan. Now, in the 90s, the guerrillas in Mexico was a big deal. My father was on a lot of uh, high-end conversations to know if this was safe for our family because they would rob people that were driving on the road, um, do some very extensive things. And so that was at some of the peak of that. But it had let up a little bit, and they felt like it was safe for our family. I remember my, my mom was just worried sick about this trip that we're taking uh, in the midst of uh, the guerrilla issue. We loaded and, and began the journey. Um, all but um, my one sister and my one brother weren't on this trip, so it was uh, five of us siblings, and we had picked up my uh, oldest sister in Guamaca, Honduras. How many of you have heard of Guamaca, Honduras? She was serving there in an orphanage. We had picked her up. And on this trip, the buses, um, I was 17 years old, and I was working on my CDLs. We didn't have to have a CDL for that, but with our business, um, my father had trucks and equipment, and, and uh, CDLs was something I was pursuing. And so I was able to uh, drive these buses, but um, when we came to the border, uh, my father said, I want you to drive in a foreign area um, where driving habits um, are really crazy. How many of you have been in a third world country? And so you know what I'm talking about with the driving habits. Those of you who haven't went yet, you find a friend that's been there and say, I want to go with you. Um, we're, we're going to Africa two to three times a year now, and God is just doing some really, really beautiful things. We just had an invitation over the turn of the year, uh, December 31st going into January 1st. They go, many of their churches go all night. And I was invited to speak at the biggest event I've ever spoken at, over 4,000, almost 5,000 people that I got to preach to in that night, and we went all night. Some of you might have thought worship went a little long this morning. Just come with me to Africa, amen. We went all night, and God moved mightily. A trip. Um, we knew this one bus had uh, brake issues, and so the one I was driving, I said, I said, Dad, I'm not able to stop when I'm to in following people. And so we got those brakes adjusted and taken care of in Texas and then continued on our journey. The, um, 
where we spent just a, a bit of time in Guamaca, Honduras, where we picked up my sister. I'll never forget how the the staff there came out to pray with us before we went. I believe it was like 3 to 4 o'clock in the morning, got up real early to get an early start. And they came, got out of bed and joined us. And there was a big circle there praying God's safety on our trip. And I'll never forget that. And so about 7.30 that morning, um, we sought for breakfast, and we had the gas stoves. And, and again, we lived very conservatively, so it wasn't about stopping. We were limited anyhow. And so we would stop, and the whole entourage would get their breakfast out. Um, I don't know if I had Wheaties that morning or not, but we had a, a good time getting breakfast. And, and I'll never forget the premonition in the air. And we've talked about it as a family after that. And that morning, my father... Um, had lost quite a bit of sleep the night before due to some of my problems. And remember, um, then from the age 13 to 17, I became disconnected. I was distant. I was rebellious. So I was showing out that level of behavior even on this trip. And so he had been up late trying to help me asking other people how to help me. I was the problem child that was keeping him from sleeping. So my sister comes to me and she says, Matthew, she said, I'd like for you to ask Dad if you can drive because he's really tired and he's not being able to stay awake. And I remember going over to my father and uh, I looked at Dad and I said, hey, would you like me to drive? And he looked way past my eyes and said, no, I'll drive. But here's a, a piece of the story that's helpful for you to know in what I was dealing with personally because two days before, we were gassing the bus up, and I was outside with him, and, and I don't know what we were talking about. And, and I looked at my dad, and, and I said, I hope I'll trip like this with you again. You know, and being a father now and having teenagers and having children, I now know what I did to his heart. I didn't know then. And most of you have an opportunity after this weekend to brush up on some of the relationship with your parents. And I know we, we've made our share of mistakes as parents. But I really, I really broke his heart that day when I said, I hope I'll never have to go on a trip like this with you again. Not knowing that I would never have the opportunity to go on a trip like that with him again. Thinking about the thousands of times later that I would give everything I own to have... One more conversation with him. Daddy, what, what did you feel in this period of your life? How did you manage having children, having responsibilities at church, knowing what, what does God want you to do? How, how did you do that, Dad? And so... 
after breakfast, after he said he'll um, he'll do the driving, about 30 minutes on down the road, I'm snoozing. We're in another bus. There's four of us, my brother and I, a Costa Rican, and another friend of ours that was driving our bus. I was snoozing, and I heard the words come across the radio. I lost my brakes. I didn't think a whole lot out of it. I was still in a stupor of snoozing, but I knew we have a problem. And so it went just only a few moments, and and our bus driver pulled aside as my father came speeding by. My father would always bring up the rear so that everybody is safe and and so he's taken care of. And so the rest of the buses pulled aside and and he flew by very quickly. And after all of this had happened and after the funeral, there would be people that would come visit us out of the goodness of their heart and and meant well, and they would come to our living room and begin to discuss with us what could have been done to avoid this accident. So I'm only sharing that to share this. When, when we don't know or understand, I mean, it's better just to remain quiet than to ask the wrong questions. How many of you have heard there are no wrong questions? We've all heard it. The teachers have said that, but they're wrong. Some people have asked me some really bad questions. I have asked some other people that were not helpful. There are bad questions. And for those of us who run our mouth a lot, we have to be extra careful. Not to... and, And... they, they would mention things like, why didn't your sisters jump out of the bus, you know? Why, why didn't your dad find it? There was people that went and studied. Eric, they studied the road and saw a place where my father could have ran up the bank to avoid the accident. And they would share that with us, putting hurt upon hurt. How many of you know hurting people hurt people? And I know that sounds a bit heavy, and I put that out there. Because it's helpful for us to be careful so that we don't use words like I did to my father. I hope I'll never have to go on a trip like this with you again. And for some of you older ones, can I just give you a hint? Most of the time you say those strong things, you don't even know you hurt anybody's feelings. It's just who you are. It sounds like I'm getting on the oldest people. Well, I don't know what's up with that, but we need... We need you. But sometimes we say things that tend to be hurtful. And so where am I at with the accident? So we're going down the mountain. And, and the second he, thing he said, he said, we're headed to eternity. And then my heart sunk as they went flying by us. And we traveled down the mountain to see where this accident would be. That's it was very clear at the rate of speed they came by us that um, there's not, they're not going to make it unless there's a miracle. 
And as we came around a curve, we saw dust and there was a jeep they were pulling behind the bus that had detached and was up on top. Later, we saw on this bank how they came around a corner and there's this large bank and the bus laid up on the bank and scooted up at a you know, much elevated place and knocked the glass out of the bank. And then there was a 70-foot ravine adjacent bus went airborne with my mother, father, three of my sisters, and another one of their friends. So as I came out to that bank, others were going down to the accident scene and a lot of activity was happening and went into a shock that there was quite some time transpired from from when I walked up to the bank and then as I went down and I had to develop this in, in healing and, and God ministering to that lost part of my life that that literally gave access for the enemy to put more lies in. I just went into a shock and I had to experienced some deep healing out of that and I received pictures from the Lord for what was going on in that time. And the Lord will allow some of these things to protect us from something worse. Sometimes we're not able to control our emotions or how we see things and ourselves and and sometimes the Lord does those things to buffer harder things of happening and then when I came to I went down to the accident scene and I saw bodies laying all over and I saw my sister it looked like somebody took a sledgehammer to her head and her her half of her face looked like it was was detached and her ear was hanging off and and I continued looking around my one sister had um had received the water out of the engine onto her, her leg, had, had got the hot water of the engine, and it blew her leg up times three. And my one sister, um, during the accident, went and sat at the steps of the bus. It was one of the stub-nosed buses and sat at the steps, and she's the only one that was able to walk away from the accident site and, and uh, dealt with... Uh, a lot of emotional trauma out of that one being able to walk away. And and I looked and saw my father face down with his head split open and his chest with his organs were already laying out. And walked on over and found my mother, which was the closest thing to my life, and never never had heard an angry word from my mother and was what and who I was the most connected to in all of life. Even in the midst of facing neglect and and being forgotten and all of those. And sat there on a tree that was about eight inches big that the bus had knocked over that was laying there. And I sat on that tree and put my hand on my mother as she was passing. Limbs, legs that were um, twisted and broken and, and something had happened to her head and just in a bad way 
knowing that in her condition it's probably better to go. And and I saw for just a fleeting twinkle of a moment where as I was speaking to her that it seemed like even less than a second where she um, was conscious of some of the things I was saying. And my one sister had come over, the one that was able to walk, and, and we watched our mother pass. And as I was there in that ravine, the activity was being cleaned up. The ambulances come. We were 30 minutes outside of the capital of Honduras, and it took quite a they were taking my sisters with broken backs and broken necks in hammocks out of the ravine. And just it looked like a war zone had happened there. And um, almost immediately after the accident, there was people in the area beginning to steal things out of the bus. There was a lot of valuables there. And um, so there's just a lot of activity. But as things quieted down, I was still in that ravine. And I'll never forget the loneliness that came over me. And especially as feeling forgotten and lost as a, a young boy, this was like the enemy's clinch. I got you for good. You are forgotten by God. And after I realized that I was the last one in the ravine, I trudged my way, grabbing my way up the bank to go to the hospital with my sisters where there's not an animal hospital that I'm aware of of how they got treated. And this is nothing against Honduras. I had just never witnessed anything like it. There's bodies laying all over the place. They wheeled my one sister in with rows of people that weren't getting attention and were, in a sense, left there to die if they couldn't get to them in time. The girls began to talk once to each other about what happened in the accident. And in this extreme setting, they undressed my sisters and put them on steel beds with open doors. During that time, um, word got back to the United States of what had happened. And one of the ministers at our church by the name of Eli Hirschberger was very familiar with Honduras and some calls. And, and the U.S. Embassy immediately got involved. Um, for some reason, I was chosen out of our uh, entourage, and I had to go speak at an office. Again, loneliness at an office with these high-end people of how we're going to get the girls out of this uh, government hospital to a private setting uh, for them to receive some care. Out of that, there was that um, we knew in Maryland that became aware of, aware of the story, and they flew down on their dollar to help um, temporarily repair uh, my sisters to get them flown back to the United States. And as I share that story, every time I share, there's, you know, an aware and say, where am I with all of this? What's the, what's the purpose of all of this? And here in a little bit, I want to conclude with a, with a couple things and just give you a few more uh, highlights of what came out of that and, and some of the ways that God healed me in that. 
And in communicating with people across the world or being a pastor or speaking at a youth conference, I don't share this story for you to pity me for sure not. I don't even share it with you for you to empathize with me. I share it with you to find yourself in your story. One of the most difficult things I've had to do in my life is to own all of it. There's parts of our story that's easy to own. There's no shame attached to it. There's no embarrassment attached to it. But there's parts of our story that the Lord continually wants to develop for us to give glory back to Him. And we do, folks. We do get caught up with our own story. We do get introverted. Even as extroverts, we get introverted into our story. And it takes so much time to process some of the story, some of the trauma. So just for a moment, I want to identify... Just for a few seconds on your existing story right now that, yes, was affected at some time in your life, bringing you to this point. But when I look out over this group of young people, as a preacher, as a visionary, I see things you cannot see. I, I see families. I see ministries. I see businesses. And what a beautiful picture for Daniel and his wife and for the little buddy that I had the opportunity to hold before the service and just walk around and pre-worship. And for God to put them there, not me, I'm, I, I have some age and no hair. And yeah, I'm conscious of it, but it's a choice I made by taking it off. But that is so beautiful. The journey does get crazy. But what, what, what about, again, your story? By the time the weekend's over, I'm going to be asking you to not only accept it, but I'm going to ask you to embrace your story because that's what I've done. And if God asks me to do it, he's probably going to ask some of you or all of you to embrace your story. During that time of doubting my salvation, there was times I was like, Lord, why couldn't have I just been born into a Baptist home where they, many of them, believe you can't lose your salvation? So you say, uh-oh, where is he going to go now? I, want, I, I can mess with you a little bit even in testimony time, right? So I honestly thought that if I would have grew up in a Baptist home, where eternal security was taught day after day, I would never, hey, whatever you believe about that, you're not going to talk them out of being saved. I'm not giving any indication of where I am doctrinally on that, but some of us could use some help. So God put me in a Baptist go looking for it. That's where he put me, and he put me in that seat. And by the time I got out of that college, nobody was going to talk me out of being born again. I owned it, I claimed it, and I shared it with thousands of people since. 
But I was the most insecure, the most doubting. I could not share my faith with somebody else. I wasn't sure I was going to. I didn't expect to let the lion out in this, but um, I get excited about the cross. All of it. Not just the resurrection. What he went through. We're going to be talking some about that. At the age of 19, two years post, burying both of my parents, going through family trauma, a friend of mine invited me to a tent meeting in Huntington, Pennsylvania. I went to that meeting as a 19-year-old boy, broken, confused, sin, couldn't get victory. Felt worse then than I did before I was saved. I was invited to that tent meeting. And a short Irish man with a big red beard preached a message. I've never heard somebody preach it like he did. And it got me. During the message, I was told he didn't normally do it like this. But he connotation mid-sermon. He said, I, the Holy Spirit, thank God for the Holy Spirit is leading me to give an invitation. He gave an invitation. And the altar, that was when the move of God in the 90s was happening faster than we could keep up with. You say, hey, I've heard this, I've heard that. I want you to tell, there was a 19-year-old boy that found healing and found God in a supernatural way. I had never heard about, I had never dreamt about, I had never read about. And I met God at that altar. I didn't go to the first altar call. There was 40, 50 people out of that tent meeting of over a thousand people. Never saw anything like it. Never knew people go to an altar. I did not, I, I did not know that. I didn't have YouTube. Come on, people. Give God some praise for YouTube. Amen? You're being cautious. Why is that? Give God some praise for YouTube. Maybe that's the first you saw somebody go to an altar. I don't know. And so I wasn't under conviction, so I didn't go. I didn't know how to go. I didn't know how to go until you watched some other people go. And people went up and wept. And they went and dealt with God. And John chapter 1, Samuel. The word of the Lord came into my heart like I had never experienced before. And as a Christian, I fell under the deepest conviction I had ever experienced. And I said, God, if he gives another altar call, I'll go. From that point to the end of this sermon, the enemy had already done what the enemy does, and he talked me out of going. I wasn't planning to go to the altar, even though I had told God I'll do it. I didn't even voice those words, but God knows our hearts and our minds. And I had told God that, and he kept me at his word. Something got me up out of my seat at that second altar call. I went up there and wept like I had never wept before. Loneliness. And in that meeting, with dozens of people around me, 
I was lonely. And I was meeting with God, and I said, God, if you do one thing for me, would you let Abner Kaufman, which was a friend of my parents, would you let him come up and be with me? Only seconds later, many of you have heard or know Abner Kaufman. About a dozen and a half of you. I felt this big hand on my shoulder. And in that very second, I knew God was more real than I ever dreamt of. Not only was he real, he was after me. Sometime later, in 1998, and I'll be done just soon, in 19, this was 96 area. Let, let, me, let me back up one time. If you give me two of those, I'll be blessed. At that meeting in Huntington, Pennsylvania, Anna Weaver, John and Anna Weaver, also parent, uh, friends of my parents, very familiar with our story, stood with our family. She came up to me, and I have never had this happen in my life, and she kind of went up like this, and she got real close to my face. She said, Matthew, you need to thank God in taking your parents. My mind went into a spin. I was thinking, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind or both? To thank God for my parents passing. Two days later, Eric, I'm outside. I wasn't a hand raiser. I didn't know how to raise my hand. I did not know what you put into your hand to get it up. I had only seen a few people do it to date. At that meeting, some of that was going on. Two days later, subconsciously, my hand's coming up. I'm like, and I reached it up real high. I was out in the open skies. I looked up to heaven, and I said, thank you, Lord, for the passing of my parents. At that very moment, life completely changed. Sometime throughout this week, I'm going to be asking you just to think. The ability and the gift of God to think our way out of depression, out of complexity, out of confusion, is absolutely one of the most enormous things that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit offer to us. Only shortly after that, the Lord asked me to be the spiritual leader of my siblings and the family. And I have an hour and a half of stories that I could tell you about that. And God's marking some of you to be the spiritual leader in your family. I was the forgotten one. I was the one that didn't have a voice. And when I began to speak, nobody heard. But they're here and now. And God has done miracles in our family that would take me so long 
I'm aching to share one of them, but I want to get you to your lunch. 1998, I had been in a relationship with two girls. Not at the same time. No, no. I was always a one-woman man. Two different relationships that didn't work out. And I was lonely again, and I said, I had heard one other time where a father went to a young man and said, would you consider a relationship with my daughter? I said, Lord, would you do that for me? I didn't get on my knees. I prayed at one time. A couple months later, a couple miles from here, I was staying in the home of John Jansix. Invited to stay there out of the move from Tennessee to here as a 21-year-old boy. I'm in the closet seeking the Lord as I was taught from my preacher friend and how to stay in the book. And I was in that closet. Mr. John knocks on the door. And I said, you can come in. He sat on the floor there with me and we made some small talk. And he asked me one question. He said, what do you think about Elizabeth? I don't know. I haven't thought about her. I'm living in this home. I had no attraction to her. And in that moment, in my mind, I said, that's my wife. Because what I had prayed only months before in March this was in June what are the chances so my wife had to deal with being given to me without being asked for to her so we've worked through most of that and some nice jewelry and some nice diamonds have helped and getting on the knees more than once. I have learned, folks, but I did not do it well at the beginning. It was such a God thing for me. And it was, in quotes, arranged. And there's hours worth of stories in that and what God had done. And at their kitchen table, only a few months later, her father put our hands together and we were betrothed, not being able to separate outside of fornication, as the Bible says. I moved out of the home when we were engaged for testimony's sake when we announced it to the church they almost fell out of their seats they were like what did this couple do now everybody knew I'm living in their home and it's like no we didn't even we didn't even know how to look at each other yet and that story of what God has done over the past 25 years is becoming one of the most rewarding and treasure-filled stories that I have in my backpack beautiful story of God restoring her. Two years after we married, we found ourselves in a counselor's office and and we had brought our brokenness and our trauma into our marriage and it wasn't going very well. Went to a counselor's office in Ohio and I was, I was there by myself this one session. He said, Matthew, you're going to have one of three things happen. You're going to have the word of God come to you by the way of a verse, or you're going to get a word picture, or this other thing that I don't remember is going to happen. 
had my head down on the desk and began to pray over me. And as a good counselor, he started hearing from God. And as I put my head on the desk, uh, 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 something began to happen. And, and God said, I'll be your father. I was running my emotion. I was depositing that inside of my heart faster than I could hear. I'll be your father. As clear as I'm talking to you today. It wasn't over yet. Remember my significant need of being forgotten, lonely? All I wanted is just to be held. I wasn't held as a toddler, at least not that I can remember. I just wanted to be held. That's all I wanted in life. I just wanted to be held. And I heard the Lord say, I'll be your father. And then Jesus walks up between me and the father and embraces me. And my life has never been the same again. That embrace I still feel today. I'm no more lonely. Have I had lonely times? Sure. But I'm not known as not being held. I'm being held by the best father ever. And he happens. Named Jesus. Who identifies. I, I gave you my story. Pieces of it. I can at best identify just a little bit with you. But we have a man by the name of Jesus that is acquainted with your grief and knows exactly the road you're on. Not only does he have that, there's a Holy Spirit that came And Jesus said, I need to go so that the comforter can come. I just, no matter how healed you are, no matter how far along on that journey of success you're having emotionally, spiritually, physically, no matter how broken you are here today, let's spend this week just connecting with the Father and blessing Him. I'm excited. I just want to bless you, first of all, for for allowing worship to come over you. This place has been so prepared, so prayed for, so invested in. So appreciate Michael and Rhoda and the team they're working with. You're in a good place. And I, and I know it feels a little sober and this story can be a little hard. And again, I'm trying to be okay with that because I tend to be a very insecure person even at 46 because I didn't want to do that but I did it and so I have to I have to accept that and so here's what I want to close with and not only in closing I'm going to walk in a level of authority in a context with this youth conference at this first day 
that's a little different for me, but I'm, I'm taking shame as a servant of the Lord, as one who has been laid hands on by the presbytery, ordained to lead and to minister to people, to own that part of the story, one that couldn't speak to others, taking a microphone and saying, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over the shame that has come over any one of you. And I want that shame to be gone in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I trust that some of you are even having that feel like there's a weight coming off of you. And that lighter. And that you're going to have a skip in your step. And, and a little bit of spring. I need to see somebody have some spring. Hey, you can go to concerts and you can worship and you can jump. Some of you need to release that spring here. Hey, I'm 46 years old. I went to Africa where this lady's well under her 50s and she can outwork. Worship as a leader. She's one of the biggest worshipers in Africa and can out-worship any one of us for hours. So some of you at least need to release two of these, to, you know, this weekend. Some worship. So, so by the name of Jesus... The Son of God. I take off shame off of your life. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit coming in agreement with Him. Some of us have laid past us and we can't even see over it. Shame has identified my life. Shame has walked with me. But it's become much less. And it continues to shrink as I walk with the Lord. There's still shame in my life. I still carry shame. When I come up to the steps, but it's a lot less than it used to be. And here's what I now put on you is a life of discovery of what the Holy Spirit has called each one of you to do. Let's stand as we just pause in prayer. Then after prayer, I'll turn it over to Michael. God, it's in Jesus' name. We thank you for this opportunity. And God, there's great praise in my heart going out to you for the preparedness of this place. I want to thank you for the openness that these young people are walking in. And the seeking of the Lord that I sense here over their lives. Thank you for those that engage deeply during the story and even the preaching times and coming up to the end of releasing shame. And we come in agreement with you, Lord, that you're releasing shame from our lives because the powerful name of Jesus does that and the enemy has to flee. Or it's almost like I see the bathroom scales change numbers as some of these people see what happened. Because the weight of shame that came by in the unexpected ways. No one to blame but the enemy. So Lord, we open our hearts now to discover the next step that you want to walk in. Thank you for this opportunity. Continue touching us as we walk together in this week. Michael, if you